Hey there. If you're enjoying listening to Michigan State of Health, can you take a minute to help us spread the word? Just go to your podcast provider of choice and leave us a rating or a review. We appreciate the feedback and it'll help others find the show. Thanks for listening and supporting what we're doing. Now here's today's episode. When I really first started, I was a little naive, to be honest. I thought, well, why don't we just ask Mary, what do you like to do? Or what did you used to like to do? Oh, you like sewing? Here's a quilting bee that you might be able to just avail yourself of. Or you like golf? Um, Here's some golf leagues. And what we know is that if they could have done that or they had the wherewithal to do that, they would have done it. And so some people who have chronic loneliness, you really have to treat that and get people ready for connection. That's the voice of Dr. Kathy Dollard, Director of Behavioral Health at MidMichigan Health. Today, on Michigan's State of Health, we'll be talking to her about how COVID-19 has helped spark new efforts to better care for Michigan's older adults. Welcome to Michigan's State of Health, a podcast about reconnecting to care. I'm your host, Patrick Dunn. We're focusing the first season of our podcast on how COVID-19 has helped to reveal major, long-standing gaps in Michigan's healthcare system and how it's catalyzed positive action to address those gaps. On today's episode, we'll continue digging deeper into some of the specific ways the pandemic has shifted our perspectives and sparked change in our healthcare system. Last episode, I chatted with Jametta Lilly, CEO of the Detroit Parent Network, about how COVID-19 has affected health equity issues in Michigan. Today, we're shifting the focus to how COVID has changed the way we think about caring for Michigan's older adults. The pandemic has been especially frightening for older adults. The risk of severe illness or death from COVID-19 increases with age for people over 50 years old, and people aged 85 and older are the most likely to get very sick. The pandemic has also had a particularly alarming effect in nursing homes. A review of over 13,000 nursing homes nationwide by the U.S. Government Accountability Office found that 94% of them had at least one COVID outbreak, and 85% of them had an outbreak lasting five or more weeks. Less measurable is the added stress the pandemic has created for the many, many people who care for older family members in their own homes. However, the pandemic has also shown a spotlight on the challenges older adults and their caregivers face, and as a result, it's prompted the creation of many new programs to improve care for older adults. I recently talked with Tim Neonsenga, a program officer at the Michigan Health Endowment Fund, about how COVID has helped catalyze action around older adults' needs. The pandemic raised more awareness around uh, residential care, also uh, nursing home, and has really put pressure on the powers that that be to support more in-home services. It has also put a spotlight on social isolation. It was an issue prior to the pandemic and increased significantly as a result of the pandemic. Our episode today will focus on that issue of social isolation. A report released in February 2020 by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine found that more than one-third of adults age 45 or older feel lonely, and nearly a quarter of adults over 65 are considered socially isolated. And that was before we all had to stay home and avoid human contact in the interest of public health. Our featured guests today created a program to help combat social isolation among older adults just before the pandemic started. The program is called Bridge to Belonging. They adapted it rapidly after the pandemic hit, and they're planning additional programming to support socially isolated older adults in the long run. 
Dr. Kathy Dollard is the Director of Behavioral Health, and Megan Dahl is a Behavioral Health Therapist at MidMichigan Health, a nonprofit health system headquartered in Midland, Michigan, that provides services to 23 Michigan counties. I talked with Kathy and Megan about adapting their program to respond to COVID, the transformative effects their work has had on program participants, and how they're planning to continue supporting older adults beyond the pandemic. Here's our conversation. Kathy Dollard and Megan Dahl, thank you both for joining us today to share your insights on caring for older adults and addressing social isolation. Uh, Before we get started here, I'd like to have you both introduce yourselves, your role at MidMichigan Health, and your connection to the Bridge to Belonging program. And we'll start with you, Dr. Dollard. Okay, so I'm Kathy Dollard, and I am the Director of Behavioral Health Service Line for our health system at MidMichigan Health. And basically what that means is my job is to be the strategic lead for behavioral health for our health system. So I help to identify where there might be gaps in care and try to work together with community members and others to fill those gaps with new programs. And then I have oversight and accountability for all the other programs that we have within our health system that have to do with behavioral health. And I'm also a clinical psychologist by training. Megan, tell us a little bit about yourself and your connection to the Bridge to Belonging program. Yeah, my name is Megan Dahl. I am a licensed master social worker, and I work as a behavioral health therapist for MidMichigan Medical Center's psychiatry department. And my role is one of a facilitator for the loneliness groups. So I have run those in person and virtually uh, for older adults to talk about uh, aspects of the program. Great. Thank you both for joining us. Uh, This program, Bridge to Belonging, started before the COVID pandemic, and I'd like to dig into what you learned about loneliness among older adults in your service area before this pandemic even hit. How was loneliness affecting older adults prior to COVID? This whole idea really started because some of us in Midland County took a positive psychology course, and we learned about the uh, effects of loneliness on anybody, so that people who are lonely have a higher rate of a lot of chronic health conditions and um, behavioral health conditions. And I really, I'm being a psychologist, knew about the behavioral health concerns um, that can lead to depression and cognitive delay, things like that. But I didn't really know about the connection with diabetes and heart disease and cancer and things like that. And so it seemed to me that we really needed to work on helping people with this problem. And we started doing some surveying uh, just by asking as part of the social determinants of health questionnaires that we were starting to ask people, you know, along with, do you have food shortage needs or transportation problems? How is your social connection? Do you feel lonely? And we were finding that, you know, 40 some percent was like go from 39, maybe one month to 43 another month. But a lot of people in my mind, more than I expected, um, were saying that they had loneliness as a concern. 
And as the COVID um, pandemic was going along, those numbers just grew. So it, it got to be over 50% of the older adults that we were asking those questions to were saying that they had loneliness as a concern. So it was really, it was already a problem. And then it just kind of was a problem that got worse. Megan, did you want to chip in on that at all? I think anecdotally, you know, I'm a therapist for individuals, including a fair number of older adults. And from an anecdotal perspective, loneliness is very often in the picture of what affects depression and anxiety. And it's such a hard thing to do anything about because people can have set views on their loneliness, what contributes to that, or their family systems are very complicated. And so it causes a lot of hopelessness for people. So I'm really glad that we are quantifying it now and getting a scope of the problem. I think that's also happening on a national scale as well. You know, when I do these trainings, I pull in uh, headlines uh, from national news sources, and it's it's definitely getting more attention, which it obviously deserves because of all of the health effects that it has. Yeah, tell me why you chose to focus on older adults specifically. What is it about loneliness that has a particularly acute or pronounced effect on that age group? Well, because of the comorbidity in a lot of ways, I mean, um, older adults already have a lot of chronic health concerns. And so we were thinking, how can we impact that? And um, also it's an age group where they come into their doctor. And so um, as a health system, we were thinking, wow, and we have people who are coming in for their Medicare wellness um, time or other annual physicals or other times that they're coming in. And it would be a good group that we would start with to target. And um, we also have good community partners. Um, So we were talking with our councils on aging and saying, you know, are, is this something that you're seeing? And it felt like a population that would be amenable to some intervention um, that and things that we could do about. And then um, there was some grant funding as well from Michigan Health Endowment Fund. Um, so um, we thought that we could avail ourselves, hopefully, with some grant funding. And um, thankfully, we were awarded um, with that grant. And um, it just, it helped us, I think, to put together uh, a a bigger plan with a project manager and um, resources. So it made sense to target that population. Also, we would get a lot of calls from family members saying, I'm really worried about mom, or I'm really worried about dad, especially if um, they were grieving a loss. And um, and now with family members sometimes living at a distance, um, they were saying, what do you have available? What resources are there? Because um, we get the feeling that our mom is just staying at home, hardly seeing anyone, not wanting to go anywhere, not really taking our advice about, you know, get out there and do something um, to feel better. And so um, there was a, a clear gap in service that we needed to fill. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think one of the thing topics that we talk about in the loneliness group is the difference between loneliness and social isolation, because social isolation is the state of not having close relationships or living alone, not having many people around you. That is separate from loneliness, because as Kathy said, the 
loneliness is a feeling, it's our perception, but older adults are more vulnerable to social isolation due to not working, limited mobility. And I think our culture has shifted. Our society is different from earlier ages of human development, where we had more community-based and familial-based dwellings, where there were multiple generations in the same place. We're doing that less now. And that, I think that's okay, you know, but that this is a, um, a downside to that is that our seniors are more isolated in that sense. And so I think from that perspective, they are a vulnerable population that we do want to have more outreach towards. So tell me about the solution you ended up coming up with for this problem we're talking about. What is the Bridge to Belonging program and how did you develop it to meet these needs that you identified among older adults in the community? The basis of the program was that sort of this expert model, I guess, where you screen people, you do a brief intervention, and then you refer them on for treatment. And it's similar to what you might do for substance use disorder or some other behavioral health concern. And so being in a health system, we thought, golly, I mean, we might be you know, primed to be able to um, identify that as a need and then do something about it. So the whole idea was to um, be able to do a warm handoff or a handoff to um, either a therapist in the office because we started simultaneously really building out our integrated behavioral health therapist in uh, physicians' offices, or could we have our care manager or a nurse make a strong referral to senior services or one of the councils on aging? And um, then can we collaborate with them on making sure that they have programming that's available that would help to alleviate uh, loneliness? When I really first started, I was a little naive, to be honest. I thought, well, why don't we just ask Mary, what do you like to do? Or what did you used to like to do? Oh, you like sewing, here's a quilting bee that you might be able to just avail yourself of, or you like golf, um, here's some golf leagues. And what we know is that if they could have done that, or they had the wherewithal to do that, they would have done it. And so some people who have chronic loneliness, you really have to treat that and get people ready for connection. There are some cognitive behavioral kind of things that people can do to help with um, getting some change going, getting some activation happening, working on what anxiety might be going on that might keep somebody from reaching out, uh, and also working on some interpersonal skills that maybe um, they're not able to ask for what they want when they want it, and um, you know, and just changing that thinking because I think that what happens over time is that people who have loneliness start shifting their their thoughts about the world and about their community and themselves, thinking things are a little more threatening than they are, and um, it holds them back. And so if you're thinking that way, sometimes then your behavior is going to be not wanting to go out. Or if somebody says, hey, I could pick you up, you say no, or you kind of start being a little standoffish. And if you're being standoffish, then maybe people stop inviting you. And then it really um, cascades into, you know, you're thinking, well, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, really. You're thinking, 
people don't want to invite me. You act in a way that makes them not want to invite you. And then they don't. And you're like, see, there's proof. And so you have to kind of work with people in order to get them to a point of being ready for those connections. And Megan has done a lot of work with that. So I worked on a protocol, which she took And she had done some groups. It's iterative, a process. And she uh, made those uh, groups better by getting feedback from the participants. So maybe, Megan, you want to talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. I think what makes me excited about our approach is that it's multifaceted. As Kathy was describing some of the things that we go over, one of the things I think causes frustration when working with people who have loneliness is that we want to be fixers. And so we want to suggest, well, here's a simple solution. And loneliness is multifaceted, which makes it very tenacious, which makes it hard to treat and change. And so that's frustrating for the clients that we serve as well, because if we say, well, just do this thing, then that's very invalidating for them, that they've been dealing with this chronic issue and, and they don't feel heard. And so the group is a way for people to come at loneliness from different perspectives, from the mental piece, uh, different cognitions, different relaxation strategies, different interpersonal effectiveness. You know, how do I handle this conflict in my family? Those are all very helpful to people. Uh, The feedback that I'm getting from the participants themselves is that the content is helpful, but the discussions are really great because part of the group is didactic, where I'm kind of teaching cognitive behavioral therapy approaches and really helping people understand all these different facets of loneliness, but then we open it up for discussion where people can relate about, yes, this happened to me and, oh, I, yeah, that happened to me too. And uh, just hearing from other people that they've also struggled in similar ways is very connecting for people and they want more of that. And so we've really learned that it's, it's one thing to help teach people this information, but that's not enough. We need the connection part of these groups to really make meaningful change. And you had, in some ways, bad timing and in some ways, perfect timing for this, right? When did this start? The first round we did was right before the shutdown. In fact, we had to kind of finish a group early because it was right around that time where people were deciding that group meetings perhaps were not the best idea. And so at that time, we did not have COVID content in the program because we were we were adjusting to and didn't really know what that was going to look like. So the first group was in person, which was very nice to have, uh, you know, in terms of the level of interaction and kind of camaraderie that developed from seeing the same people week after week. And then we have since then developed a virtual program Uh, So that we've done that twice. The most recent one uh, was just this past March, and we'll probably do another one in the fall. Uh, And it's been nice because we've been able to kind of target different areas. So we started with Midland Focus. We've also done kind of Gratiot and Gladwin, which are more rural areas. Uh, So that has been a nice thing to kind of reach out to different people. But as the pandemic has unfolded, we've kind of brought that 
information into the groups because it has changed how we find solutions for chronic loneliness when we're all less connected than we were before. So that's been really useful to be able to kind of real time address those ongoing issues. Yeah, I'm curious about how this existing problem of loneliness changed during the pandemic. I think we all experienced it over the past year and a half, of course, and Dr. Dollard pointed out the statistics before going from 40% of people identifying as lonely to 50%. But what sort of stories were you hearing from older adults about their loneliness during the pandemic? How was this manifesting for them? Yeah, it's really been unfortunate because a lot of the programs that were in place became obsolete and, and impossible to do. So a lot of the programs through Council on Aging, like uh, group meals together, uh, were not possible because they weren't safe to do. There were a lot of people that I worked with who had social groups, like a card playing group or a quilting group that were their one outing a week or even once a month, but that was so refreshing to them that got cut. And that caused a lot of grief for people, understandably, that their sole interaction with people outside of their families perhaps was gone. And so that significantly increased that social isolation aspect of loneliness on top of the fact that older adults know, many of them are quite savvy with technology, but many of them are not so hot on doing a virtual type of program. And so that's been difficult as well of reaching out to people when our options are limited. So one of the things that we've tried with the loneliness group has been to do this virtually and kind of help coach how to do a Zoom meeting, but also allow a phone call in option so that people can just use their phone and call in and just listen. You know, they don't have to hear or see what we're doing. And we've mailed out the handouts and the PowerPoint slides so they have something to look at, but really wanting to uh, to reach those people as well because those are even more isolated folks. So it has been really challenging. I think this past, these past few months, there's been some hopeful changes uh, in terms of the ability for people to connect again. Uh, one client that I work with, you know, the, the card game is back online. And so that caused so much joy. And so we celebrate those wins. There's certainly a lot of things that are still not even back up to the level that they were pre-pandemic. And we knew that that wasn't even sufficient enough at the time. So we're kind of working in this deficit, really trying to catch up and reach these people as much as possible. What sort of feedback have you received from participants about the program? A lot of really positive feedback. A lot of people really emphasize that discussion aspect as being helpful. One gentleman was so excited to get specific strategies for what's called interpersonal effectiveness skills. So uh, Dear Man is a, a popular one from dialectical behavior therapy that we bring into the group. And it involves an acronym of how to approach getting what you want out of a relationship. So if you need to ask someone to do something, uh, 
how to go about having that conversation. He was so excited to have that framework for him. And he made several comments that he's going to share it with all these other people. Uh, And so that's exciting to hear that there might be kind of ripples as well. So that we're helping people feel like they have tools in their own coping toolbox, but also that they're going to then share that with other people in their lives. Uh, So that's been really nice feedback. And I think just having personal connection, you know, for people who are able to do a virtual, um, to kind of see people, you know, and, and have a group discussion, especially in the midst of the pandemic has been quite refreshing. I know one Uh, remembering one participant in one of our rural settings was really excited to talk to other people in her county that were also struggling with loneliness. And I think that they set up like coffee dates as a group after our, our sessions just to maintain that connection aspect. So that's been really cool to see the offshoots of what can develop. So how are you planning to continue addressing older adults' loneliness beyond the pandemic and beyond this particular program? One of the ideas that came about in our collaboration with 211 for Northeast Michigan was that um, during the beginning of the pandemic, 211 had started getting a lot of calls for um, help with different things, but um, the callers would spend an unusually long amount of time with the the person who was taking the call from 211. And it seemed that the issue was more that they, the caller might be lonely. And so 211's director, Sarah Kyle, had started um, having a conversation with the United Way to say, hey, maybe it would be a good idea to do something about that. They brought me in and we started talking a bit about it. They also uh, reached out for some training materials from our community mental health. And really, we started working on putting together a program, a friendly caller program where we could connect people who felt lonely to a volunteer who might want to have a call with them. And uh, our grant that I had spoken about earlier had a little bit of money left for targeting that program. And so we've hired a person um, who is going to be our connections coordinator, and he is a, a former minister Um, So he has a lot of um, good background and connecting people. And so um, we're just getting started with some training that another person from our well-being coalition has put together. And so it will be one of the offerings. So as we're talking with patients, either um, the health system is or senior services is talking with people and they think, oh, well, this person really could use a connection. We're going to pair people up. So at first we were thinking that we would want to have people in need and then volunteers. As it turns out, as we started talking to people about, hey, we might be putting together this program and talking about it. Some people that we were talking to, older adults, um, like there was a man who was in his 80s and um, mentioned it. And he said, oh, I would volunteer for that. And meaning he would be the volunteer, not the recipient. 
And so it came to us like, you know, these are two people we're making connection. They're making a connection on equal footing. We can have everyone volunteer to be a participant. There are not some like volunteers who are giving of their time and other people who are in need of, you know, of a call. Is everyone really needing this connection? That's really our next iteration of this program. And um, we're thinking it's going to launch in the next month or two. That's really exciting. I know that the Bridge to Belonging program so far has been funded by a specific grant. Do you think the Loneliness Groups and the Friendly Connections program are going to be sustainable beyond that funding? I do, because it's collaborative. And so I think when you're collaborating across different organizations, there's additional funding that we could go to, but we also are sharing costs and um, sharing across our different systems. So um, bringing the United Way in, I think is helpful because they are uh, accustomed to helping with fundraising and funding or sustaining programs that are having good outcomes. And so I, I think that there's some avenues for that. Um, our health system has kind of built uh, this program into uh, the way that we do business. And so um, identifying people um, with their social determinants of needs um, and their, you know, their loneliness is something we've just built in. Um, and so I think that that makes it sustainable as well. Zooming back out to the broader level here in Michigan, or even at a national level, how do you think the pandemic has affected public perception of loneliness and other challenges that older adults face? Has it helped to raise public awareness around that? I think so. I think really it's normalized uh, loneliness and, and other behavioral health concerns as well, because all of us collectively went through time when we were needing to be socially distanced. And so I think it's um, brought to the forefront for all of us. You know, we all know how we felt. And, you know, personally, I felt, you know, stress of that and, you know, the depression and the anxiety that, you know, is really found itself to be on the rise. Um, I think that, you know, people who had some of these concerns, it might've been exacerbated, but a lot of other people have become more aware of it. And I think that in a lot of ways, that's a good thing because um, not good that people are feeling stress or feeling um, lonely themselves, but that um, when it's a collective experience, then I think there's more empathy for it and there's less shame around it. Um, and I don't think people should ever feel ashamed of any mental health concern or loneliness, but there is in the past some stigma. And I think that um, some of that is going away because of the pandemic. Yeah, I 100% agree with Kathy. I think the pandemic silver lining has been that it has normalized and humanized this experience for all of us, that isolation is so hard to deal with and it affects our mental health and we need opportunities for connection. These are things that other people have felt for a long time, but bringing it into kind of the public sphere has been really helpful. I am hopeful that a lot of these lessons will continue, that will continue to grow how we connect together as a society. 
I want there to be kind of some meaningful things taken out of this experience for all of us, how important it is to connect with people who don't have many connections, you know, to kind of remember our friends and neighbors in that sense. And for people to give themselves permission to prioritize their own mental health. And just like we take care of ourselves physically, we also have to take care of ourselves mentally. And knowing what tools are going to help with that, maintaining that mental health is going to hopefully continue to expand and grow for people. Thank you both so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you sharing your program and your insights with us. Great. Thank you so much. Hey, you're very welcome. That's all for today's episode of Michigan State of Health. Thanks again to Kathy Dollard, Megan Dahl, and Tim Neonsenga for joining us. Please join us next week when Megan McDermott of Groundwork Center for Resilient Communities will join us to discuss the pandemic's effect on the way we think about our food system and how her organization helped bridge the gap between farmers and emergency food providers in the pandemic's early days. Michigan State of Health is produced, written, and edited by me, Patrick Dunn. Estelle Slootmaker is our consultant and the author of the State of Health feature story series, which you can read at secondwavemedia.com. Sarah Jean Baker is the project manager for State of Health. Our theme music is Autumn Day by Kevin McLeod. This podcast is made possible through the support of the Michigan Health Endowment Fund. Thanks for joining us today. Stay safe, be well, and we'll see you next time.